Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the rest of the chapter tonight. How many people have traveled overseas? What did you have to carry to get through customs? Passport, right? Anybody, what's, uh, anybody have any weird uh, customs in the places where you traveled? It's okay to interact here for just a couple of couple minutes. What's that? Yeah, like I'm thinking of um, like I've heard I haven't been there, but I've heard in China that you're supposed to burp after you eat. Is that right? I'm like, I can't wait to go there. What's that? Some <laughs> some Americans see that in the United States. <laughs> I got you. Um, let's see. I also read that um, you're never supposed to in, in China. You're never supposed to uh, refill your own glass from the pitcher. Um, matter of fact, what it is is you're supposed to refill the other person's. And so sometimes uh, if the if your host wants their glass refilled, they'll just put a little bit of water in yours and you're and they're waiting for you sitting there. OK, are you going to reciprocate or not? Um I don't know if you heard this. Many U.S. and European salesmen have accidentally insult, insulted would-be customers in the Middle East simply by sitting incorrectly. When they cross their legs, they point the sole of their foot at their intended customer. As readers of, um, excuse me, dis- displaying the sole of your foot apparently is considered an insult in the Muslim community. Also in France, if you send a bouquet of flowers, it should have only an odd number of flowers, but never seven or thirteen. Just kind of odd customs. Um, apparently, also in China, you're expected to slurp your soup. I keep thinking I'm really going to fit in in China. When you go to a different country, most of the time it's pretty obvious that you don't fit in, right? Well, what if you were making a, a plan to go to a trip, you know, go to a particular place, and you had a person who had already said to you, okay, Look, I know you don't know your way around here. Let me show you the ropes. The best way to learn behavior is by example. So Paul says, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. One of the things I want you to know is that Paul obviously is saying here uh, that we are citizens of heaven. Right? That... um, Even though we're in this foreign land, we are actually not citizens of this earth. And so he says, let me kind of show you the ropes. Verse 17, he says, brethren, join in following my example. That's from the root word mimeteo. It's the same place we get the word mimic. It means to imitate. So Paul says, brethren, join in imitating me. Now, that may sound kind of bold or presumptuous, but you got to remember, Paul said, uh, twice to the, the Corinthians, uh, I think it was a chapter, yeah, Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's like, I am following hard after my king. We saw that on Thursday. I am pressing on, I am following hard after Christ. And so it's okay for you to imitate me. Now, could you say that? Could I say that? The, the motto for today's Christian often, too often is, Well, do as I say, but not as I do. We tend to, instead of Paul says, I I, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We tend to want to change this one word. Imitate me when I imitate Christ. 
right? The times that I'm living like him, then I want you to be like me. Now, Paul, we know, doesn't live a perfect life, but he apparently didn't need to put a lot of clarifications in his speech. He didn't need to make that distinction. In general, he could say, follow me, imitate me. Verse 17 again, brethren, join in following my example. And the word join in, that indicates that there were already those in Philippi who were using Paul's ministry and his life as a pattern. So he says, brethren, join in Philip in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. You guys remember that old gag where someone says, hey, can you show us into that room? Yes. Walk this way. And then they walk like this and the other people follow him. No, don't remember the gag. <laughs> well, Paul here is saying, imitate me, but he doesn't have a goofy walk. He has a good walk. All right, another twisted thing in my head here. It's like one of those music videos, right? Or the big musical production where one guy has this dance move and then the three people around him learn the dance move like in five seconds. And then in 15 seconds, the whole town is dancing. I keep waiting for that to happen to me like at Publix. I don't, don't think it's going to happen. It doesn't really happen that way. What happens is there's one choreographer, right? And he's got like three or four lead dancers and they pay great attention. They pay close attention. They learn the steps from him. Then those lead dancers provide a pattern to show for the whole rest of the dance troupe where he says, note those who so walk. That word note is scopio. It's the same place we get microscope or telescope. It means to fix your eyes upon to direct your attention to. Paul's basically saying here, look. You've got my life that you can pattern after. And you've got some others who so walk. He's saying, I know in Philippi there are people who paid attention when I was there who so walk the same way that I'm walking. He says, note them, pay attention to them, pattern your behavior after me and after those people who are doing similarly. Then he says, look at the end of uh, that of that verse, verse 17, one more time. He says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. That word pattern there is the word typos. It's the mark of a stroke or a blow. How many people remember typewriters? You guys are old. <laughs> I remember typewriters, too. They worked what by striking a blow on the paper and leaving an impression, right? What it came to mean is a, was a pattern or a mold. It's a way of reproducing something. Now, my mom used to sew. I know some of you ladies quilt. Have you, do you sometimes use a pattern? You use some method to say, okay, I'm going to make this look like this. Um, we bought a couple days ago, we bought a bookcase from Ikea, Ikea. And the directions that I got were in Swedish. Well, they weren't really. There were no words. It was just pictures, right? Um, just pictures. It was a pattern. It was an example to follow, to reproduce a desired thing. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, look, notice those good examples around you and follow those examples. See, God has provided you and me with examples. Not many but some, we know Jesus, of course, 
is our prime example. And Paul says, look, it's okay. You can follow me in general, too. Let's talk about the pattern that Paul has left us. He basically says, look, you can follow this pattern that I've left. What are some of the things we've learned about Paul and his pattern of life in just this book? Well, let's see. Here was a guy who had joy in prison. His joy wasn't dependent upon his circumstance. Paul says, you can pattern your life after that. Here's a guy who was a slave for Christ. He saw himself as a slave for Jesus. Whatever Jesus wants me to do, that's what I want to do. Paul was, we know from chapter one, a man of prayer. Paul was from chapter one, we know a man who had partners in the gospel, who loved the people that loved the gospel. Paul was a was a man who had the mind of Christ. Remember chapter two, where he says, this is my example. My king humbled himself. God became a man, became a baby, humbled himself to obedience, even to the point of death. All of those things, Paul says, look, these are things that you can pattern yourself after. Paul was a man who quit trusting in his own achievements. We saw that this last chapter, right? His own righteousness. And he traded it out for Christ's righteousness. You can pattern your life after that. Paul was a man, most recently, who was forgetting the things that were behind him and was pressing on to that high calling, the thing that Jesus wants me to do. That's what I'm pressing for. Paul says, follow that example. Verse 17 says that there will be others, too, who will share that same pattern. So there's really two applications here. I see. The first application is, look, actually notice around you. There are good examples. Now, if you're smart, you might go, OK, I'm going to follow that person's example in this area and that person's example in this area. But there's a second application which stands to reason, which is not only note the good examples, but be a good Example. You guys know that, right? Whether you like it or not, you are striking a blow. You are leaving an impression. Right? It goes without saying on your kids, on your co-workers, on your church family. You are leaving an impression. So Paul says, notice the good examples, follow them and also be a, a good example because you also have followers. Now, notice this next verse, Paul says, there's a reason I want you to take particular attention to notice the good examples. Here it is. Verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. You guys see that? That's sad. But what Paul is saying is the reason it's so important to take notice of good examples, those whom he has provided for you, is because there are far more bad ones. Out there. Verse 18 again, for many, where's polis? Um, it's the same word we get um, poly anything, right? It means a lot of, there are a lot of people who walk, of whom I have told you often. In other words, that word often is another uh, poly word. He's basically saying there are many people and I've told you many times. And now I tell you again, verse 18, even weeping. Stop there. Isn't. Isn't this the epistle of joy? Haven't we talked over and over again about how Paul is filled with joy in the midst of this terrible situation in prison? He could lose his head any moment, any day. This is the epistle of joy in prison. We are uh, amazed at it. It's the 
the epistle of joy facing persecution. It's the epistle of joy facing problems. But here he says, I tell you, even now I am weeping. It's like you can see the, the tears falling toward the parchment here. Paul weeps. And there's one reason. It's not his own persecution. It's not his facing prison. It's not his problems. It is people facing perdition. Because he says, verse 18, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. You guys see that Paul could have joy in every circumstance, but because of this one. He weeped, he weeped over those who were in much better circumstances than he, but who had a much worse destination. Right. Paul could rejoice because his destination was so good. But he weeped for those who circumstances were better, but their destination was much worse. The pattern that Paul gives us is one of is that of one who mourns not of his own temporary problems, but of others permanent perdition. Here's an application. When was the last time you weeped for the lost? The application would be, Lord, give me a heart for the lost. For those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, who are these enemies, at least in this letter that Paul's talking about here? Well, they seem to be posers of some kind. Because it's it the, the context seems to indicate that Paul is saying, look, these are people who are in, around you. They are examples to you, but they're not good examples. So these are people that are probably within the church. Posers, uh, imposters of some kind. Um, Many commentators now think that Paul is beginning to talk again about the Judaizers. Remember when we talked about them? The beginning of this chapter. Um, now, the Judaizers could certainly be called the enemies of the cross, right? Because their message was over and over again, look, the cross is a good start, but it's not enough. Well, if you say after Jesus, who died on the cross, who said his one of his last words were, it is finished, if you can say after Jesus says it is finished and you say it's not, you are an enemy of the cross. So it could certainly be that he's talking about that. But there's another school of thought which I tend to go with on this. You can take your choice. It doesn't uh, it matters, but I, I, I can't tell you which way to go with it. And that is that from the, at least for me, from the plain reading of the text. And by the way, when you're trying to figure out what does the Bible say, it's always the best strategy for when you read it to go, well, what do I think it says right off the bat? Right to the simplest, non least uh, circ circumlocutionary way. How's that? Um, the, the most direct path to say, Lord, this seems to be what you're saying. Now. I think because of that, I think that Paul is not talking here about those who practice legalism, but actually the opposite. Those who practice license. Right. As as we went through Galatians, we saw the, the tendency is when, when you won't focus on Christ, you will focus either on legalism, which uh, will will bind you to a set of rules and regulations, which is not Christ, or you will go the other direction and you will become Licentious, which means one who thinks he has license. You think you have the the uh, legal license to sin. The reason I think that verse 19 is talking about 
those who are licentious. Because look at it. It says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. To me, this seems to be using the language that describes the those who took on the Epicurean philosophy, which was, you've heard it before, you hear it every day in America, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because he says, verse 19, look, their end is destruction, and their God is their belly. Paul was probably using a contemporary reference to the Greeks. Anybody in this Greek culture would go, oh, I know what he's referring to, because um, if, if you read Greek mythology, remember Cyclops? Eh? Yeah, if you read it. Um, he says in Euripides, he says, my flocks, which I sacrifice to no one but myself, and I don't sacrifice these to the gods, and I sacrifice this to my belly, the greatest of the gods. For to eat and drink each day and to give oneself no trouble, this is the God of wise men. That was Cyclops' philosophy. And Paul says, look, these guys who tell you that's the kind of philosophy you should have, these Epicureans, those are the ones that I'm talking about. That, that the idea is eat, drink and be married. Take it easy. Look out for number one. Worship the God of self. Self-pleasure, self-worth, self-esteem, selfishness. To have your belly be your God. Paul is talking about those who are ruled by their appetites. By sex, fame, wealth, power. Wow, the Bible is pretty contemporary, isn't it? Paul says right here, look, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. See, Paul could be saying this. Well, he is saying this to our fellowship right here tonight. Look, be careful who you follow. Be careful the examples that you follow. There are a few good, godly examples. Take note of them because there's a whole slew of people, even who call themselves Christian. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. That is themselves, their passion. And then he says, and whose glory is in their shame. That is, there are people that you should not follow because... They're proud of what they should not be proud of. They're proud of what they should be, in fact, ashamed of. Now, in our country, there are too many examples for us to go into. If you watch any of those shows, I confess I used to. I promise I haven't watched these in years, but like the Jerry Springer kind of stuff. People that are proud of what they should be ashamed of. But sad to say, it's not just in the world, is it? It's in the church. Mainstream denominations being proud of the fact that they are ordaining homosexuals, that homosexuals are standing in the pulpit and proclaiming the word of God as if everything is okay. There are churches that are proud of their tolerance. Their glory is in their shame. There's another thing called the Jesus Seminar. Have you heard about that? The Jesus Seminar is a group of about 200 individuals who include scholars with advanced degrees in biblical studies, religion or related fields, published authors who are recognized authorities in the field of religion. Here's some of the things that these people in the Jesus Seminar have um, 
Well, they've concluded. They vote apparently by putting a marble in a bag and says, okay, I believe this part of the Bible and this part I don't. And so this is what we're declaring to be true in the Bible. And this is what we're not. Here's some things. Jesus apparently practiced healing without the use of ancient medicine or magic, relieving afflictions we now consider psychosomatic. So all the things, all the healings that Jesus did were just psychosomatic uh, symptoms. Apparently, according to these guys, he did not walk on water. He did not feed the multitude with loaves and fishes. He did not change water into wine or raise Lazarus from the dead. And he was executed as a public nuisance, not for claiming to be the son of God. Apparently, according to the Jesus seminar, the empty tomb is a fiction. Jesus was not really raised bodily from the dead. These are people who claim to be, call themselves Christians. See, the Christians in this Jesus seminar are proud of their enlightenment. Their glory, Paul would say, is in their shame. The end of verse 19 shows us the root of all of it. Paul says, don't follow these guys. Don't listen to them. And here's how it began. Here's how it starts. Who set their mind on earthly things. How could you come to those conclusions about Jesus unless you say, "Okay, well, obviously all of this, the uh, extra, uh, the supernatural couldn't possibly happen. Who set their minds on earthly things. The word set there is for nail. It means to direct one's mind to a thing to seek, to focus on. But it also means, interestingly enough, to strive for. Now, what did we just learn on Sunday about striving? Paul was striving for what? He was striving to reach his goal, his high calling, everything that Jesus wanted him to accomplish. But their focus, they set their minds, it says, on earthly things. Even though they call themselves Christians, their focus was on earthly things. Um, Today, it would be a bigger house, a younger wife, a nicer car. Power, prestige, fame, all the stuff that the world has to offer. Paul says, don't follow that example. Reminds me, you can turn there if you want, but you don't need to. Luke 12. Let me read to you the the parable that Jesus spoke of the rich fool. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Paul was striving for those things which were in front of him in heaven. These guys, the Epicureans, in my opinion, were striving, setting their mind on earthly things. Matter of fact, let's read back uh, Philippians chapter three. Look at what Paul is striving for. The thing that he's focused on. Verse 12. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
What a difference in their mindsets. And y'all, it starts in the mind. We're going to as we as we get closer to the end of this chapter, we're going to see that Jesus transforms their bodies. But what our part is now is to make sure that our minds are being conformed. Right. Paul says, basically, look. You are citizens of heaven. You are not citizens of this earth. Walk this way. Follow our example. Don't follow those guys. Those their minds are here on earth and this earth. Think about it. What's going to happen to this earth? It's going to be destroyed. It's going to go down literally in flames. So their mind is in a place. They've set their affections. Everything that they love will be destroyed at one point. Matthew six twenty. Jesus says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. You get it? It all has to do with, OK, I'm not really going to invest here. I'm going to invest here. This is where my mind is, where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. That's the issue. And Paul's treasure, his prize, his heart was in heaven. Look at verse 20. Here it is. This is the key part of the, the verses tonight. For our citizenship is in heaven. We've talked about this before. Remember the Philippians, when they heard this, when this was read out loud to the church, all the Philippians would go, oh, I see where you're going. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. Philippi, if you were to spit on the ground, you would be spitting on Roman soil. Philippi was a Roman colony, even though it was right here in the midst of Greece. It was 800 miles away from Rome, but they still followed the rules of the emperor. Right. They were in Greece, but they were governed by an emperor who was far away. Well, all the rights, they had all the rights, the privileges, the responsibility of Roman citizenship. And yet they were surrounded by Greeks. Does that sound familiar? To be in one place and following the king of someone who is coming back sometime. Paul says it is with us the same way. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are in a strange land. This world is not our home. And we shouldn't get too comfy. We should have a light touch on the things of this world. Paul's treasure, his prize, his passport, his citizenship, his mind was not in Antioch, where he was from. It wasn't in Tarsus, where he grew up. It wasn't in Jerusalem, where he made a name for himself. It wasn't even in Philippi, where he loved the people there. And it certainly wasn't in Rome, where he was right now. His mind, his prize, his passport was in heaven. And that's why, again, that's why Paul could face death so bravely. Well, more than that, joyously. This was his impending death was merely a homecoming. Paul was and we are strangers in a strange land who serve a different king. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word eagerly wait there. Damien Kyle says the word is like um, to be on your tiptoes. It's the, the picture of waiting in a parade to see the king, to, to, 
to crane, to stretch, to patiently, attentively wait, to not lose focus, to wait to see him come on the scene. Y'all, I know you know it, but if you're like me, you, you forget. Our king is returning. He is coming soon. Or quickly, I should say. When he comes, he says it will be like a thief in the night. What that means is, how many of you have ever been prepared for the thief in the night? Jesus said, look, if, if a man was prepared for a thief in the night, he'd, he'd you know, basically set up a fortress. He'd have his gun ready. We're not prepared for a thief in the night. When Jesus comes, the, remember the, the parable of the, the ten uh, virgins and the five weren't ready at all. They didn't even have their, their wicks ready. But the five that were ready, they were still sleeping. We, are, we will not be prepared in the, the ultimate sense of the word. Our king is returning, and when he comes, he will be coming quickly. And when that happens, we won't be the oddballs in this foreign land. When that happens, he will take the throne and he will be ruling and reigning and we will be ruling and reigning with him. And better yet, he will take us back to our real homeland. But when we go to heaven, when we go back to our homeland, the place that our passport actually says, um, by the way, the word there where it says uh, citizenship is politeo, I think it's the same word we get politics. And apparently also it's um used for a city, a capital city, where they actually have a role. They have a, a log that has the names of the citizens in there, right? And um, you, there's someplace there is written, if you know him, your name in the book of life, right? In that role. When, when, it, when he comes back, he will take us to heaven. And let me tell you, when he takes you, you don't want to be wearing that old rag you're wearing right now talking about your body, not talking about your clothes. Verse 21, he says, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. And maybe you say, wait a second, I resent that. I don't think my body's so lowly. Give it time. Give it time. Actually, the old, anybody have the old King James? It's even worse. It says vile. <laughs> He will transform our vile bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body. For me, as I get older, my body is slowly moving from the new King James to the old King James. <laughs> it's already lowly and it's getting more vile. I mean, our bodies are subject to sickness, to broken bones, to cancer to autism, our bodies lose vitality by the day, by the minute. We lose teeth. We lose hair. Some of us lose the glory of a full head of hair. <laughs> Nothing personal. And sometimes that hair shows up in not so glorious places. The point is, listen, that heaven is so glorious Really, truly, it is so wonderful. You are going to need a much better spacesuit than what you have. 
right? To really enjoy it, you're going to need a complete makeover. And Jesus, it says, will make sure that that happens. Look at verse 21 again. He will transform our lowly, vile bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body. The word conformed there is sumorphous. I love it because it means to have the same form as another, as something similar. In other words, Jesus will make our bodies just like his. How cool is that? When he was resurrected, he had a physical body, right? Uh, Thomas could touch his hand. He could put his fingers in the nail prints. So it was a physical body. And yet Jesus could walk through walls. I mean, he could appear. He could disappear. He could defy the laws of nature. And he could eat. And then eat some more. And eat some more. Now some of you are looking forward to heaven. Now think about this. What a contrast. We've looked at citizens of earth. Earth dwellers. And citizens of heaven. What did it say about the glory of the citizens of earth? Their glory is in their shame. All the disgusting things that one one earth dweller says to another, hey, check out what I did last night. Their glory is in their shame. And yet Jesus, I love this, takes our shamed bodies and makes them glorious. How does he do it? Well, it's easy for him. Look at verse, the rest of verse 21. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Did you get that? Jesus can make this lowly body into something glorious because he's able to subdue all things to himself. He's able to subdue all things to himself. So your lowly, vile body is a piece of cake. Now, look at that last sentence. He is able to subdue all things to himself. That means the word is past, P-A-S. Whenever you see that word all, past, it means all, everything. He is able to, and when it says to subdue, it means to put in order, in rank, to make things in order, to control. He is able to take control of all things. Think about that. Jesus is able to take control of all things. That means your tongue. That means your fears. That means your worries. That even means the besetting sin that you have given up on. Jesus is able to take control of all things. He's able to subdue all things to himself. Tonight, there's another great application for you. The thing that you have given up on. Lord. I said that I was going to quit this or stop that or do this. And I haven't. That thing. Come to him tonight and say, Jesus. Your word says that you are able even to subdue all things to yourself, to your control. Jesus, will you do that in my life tonight? We're going to look at verse one of chapter four because of that first word. Therefore. We know whenever you see the word, therefore, you need to find out what it's there for, because it usually talks about something that happened beforehand. So it would make sense that we talk about it tonight rather than so much on Sunday. Jesus says, therefore, because or Paul says, therefore, because of all these things. 
My beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. We won't cover this a lot, but notice again how much love is in that verse. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Man, this guy loves these guys, and he is proud of them. He says, you are my joy and my crown. It's like, I am so rooting for you because you guys are like my crown. When I, when I talk about you guys, it's, you're something that I am proud of. But then he gives them one last exhortation. And he says, stand fast in the Lord. Therefore, because we serve a king who is coming back, because we are citizens of heaven and because he is able to subdue all things, stand fast. Stand fast, it says, in the Lord. Now, if I'm right about chapter 3, well, we know, we're, without, without question, we know how chapter 3 started. Paul says, don't be swayed by what? Legalism. Now, we're not sure who he's talking about here, but I think that he's talking uh, toward the end there about license. I think he says, don't be swayed by those, don't follow those who fall into license. But here he says, stand fast in the Lord. Don't be pulled into legalism, trying to please God by following a bunch of rules, a set of rules. By the way, I haven't said this in a while, in case you've forgotten. One of the appeals about legalism is that it's, in a weird way, it's easy. Right? If I have a set of rules... I don't actually have to talk with a ruler. All I got to do is, okay, check that one off. I check that one off. Check that one off. I must be right with God. No. Paul says, don't fall into that. But then he also says, don't be fooled and follow those who say that they are Christian, but their actions, their behavior, their decisions, their mindset is only on the things of earth. Paul says, Stand fast, not in legalism, not in license, but in the Lord. And Galatians says that in the Lord there is liberty. There's a huge difference between liberty and license. We are not free to sin. We are free from sin because God is so good because we are citizens of heaven. Let's pray.